0: Welcome to the Upgroup Meet the Masters podcast series. I'm Adrian Blair and I'm talking to the winners of the 2021 Digital Masters Awards, giving you the chance to learn from the best operators in the world right now of high growth digital businesses. Today's guest is Pierre Dimitri Gorkotti. He's the Senior Vice President of Delivery for Uber, responsible for the Uber Eats business globally, and won the award in 2021 for Excellence in General Management. Pierre, it's really great to have you with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Adriana. Thank you for having me. So let's dive right in. If I reflect on what you achieved in the early days, the standout thing was just the incredible pace of growth that you had across so many cities. You know, the the early days of Uber, you were entering city after city and growing, establishing a foothold incredibly fast. You started out, of course, running the business in France, then running the rides business in all of Western Europe. Tell us a bit about the early days and how did you expand so fast at a pace that, you know, most startups can only dream of? The few things that allowed for such a rapid expansion were one,
1: conviction on product market fit, which is often a reason why you don't go too fast and you don't expand too quickly. Somehow you still want to figure out that you're really onto something. You want to further refine product market fit, further understand what the profitability prospects really are for your business and so on. Very quickly, we got full conviction about the product market fit. Second thing that I think has helped a lot was having what we called a launchers organization, which means... We had a dedicated organization eventually reporting to a COO, a CEO that was responsible for flying from country to country, effectively parachuting people and having them uh, stay in that country until they had launched and hire a full-time team. And so that allowed for speed as well, because that meant we didn't let hiring be a bottleneck to growth and to expansion. We literally have you know, non-native people sit in Germany and focus on launching it. And I'd say the third thing was probably a fairly decentralized model whereby our early general managers, like it was for France at the time, were frankly really very much considered like the CEOs of the markets, of the cities. And so that fairly decentralized model, even though there was a strong common formula and common playbooks that that they could tap into, those general managers were very much empowered to do what they thought it took to, to be successful in a given country. So those are probably the three elements. The product market fits, the launcher organization, and the empowerment of
0: GMs. Wow. And that launcher organization, were those people who already had been in the business a while and like understood it really well from, from the US, essentially? Or were they people hired from outside? How did that org work? Actually, the majority
1: of them were hired from the outside. Now, two things one from a behavioral standpoint we were looking for people that would be comfortable with the idea of being in a new city discovering a market from scratch like we very much thought about them as swiss knives so people that could be quite generalistic uh, that could you know jump into a new country get to know that scene the startup scene on the ground get to understand how to tweak our model for it to work in that particular country hire people like there was just a a pretty um, particular set of capabilities that we were looking for in those roles. And secondly, to your question around how did you make it work if all those people were coming from outside the company, we were relying very much on playbooks, which meant that every launch that we would have, we would iterate or improve that playbook and pass it to the next launcher that was going to do that next launch, which means that by the time you launched, 10 or 15 markets, you start to have a pretty robust playbook that makes it pretty easy for someone new to the company to come in and understand the ins and outs and what it takes to go and launch a market. We used to have a team in Chile at the time that was effectively responsible for maintaining those playbooks, sharing best practices across organizations to make sure there was always an up-to-date view of like what's the best in
0: class way to operate a country or city to launch a new market and so on. People in tech like this word playbook, you hear it quite a bit. What did that actually mean? Are we talking like literally books or was it just like a one-pager or how did these things work? So let me give you an example. You'd have, for instance, a playbook, which is how
1: do you add new drivers to the Uber app? And that was an important topic because most of our growth was constrained by our ability to add new drivers to the app. And so you'd go on Nazana or something along those lines. And then you'd have a list of like 15 different initiatives that have worked in different places. And you'd see, oh, whatever initiative number three is, you know, some sort of a, a referral campaign or you go or whatever a non-demand physical event that you can have where you host a few drivers and you do, do XYZ. And so you'd click on that and you'd have the whole details of how you organize that, which means it's almost like a food recipe where you'd say, okay, well, step number one, I need to gather 10 drivers that are very bought into what Uber does, that are willing to be ambassadors. Uh, step number two, I need to agree with them on a date where we could have that physical event. And step number three, call 10 locations and try to think about, you know, not paying more than X or structuring your deal in this way. And step number four, prepare an invite that does that. You know, all those sort of things that would really almost industrialize that. And then every now and then, you would edit the playbook to make it better next time, where you say, hey, if you can't find a venue that's big enough, you could do it in three different venues at the same time, and it has the benefits of doing X, Y, Z. Like usually very, very concrete. And then in many instances, you would kind of you know run on your own and try something new. And you know, if you're lucky, it worked out, and you could playbook that as well.
0: And if not, you know, you'd, you'd learn from it. So that, that's really how it worked in the early days, and I think it was an important part of the recipe. And was it like a a menu where the person on the ground ultimately just chooses what it is they want to do? Or were there some parts of it that are like compulsory? You you have to do these five things and these other things are are optional. Like I mentioned, there there was a fair degree
1: of empowerment of the the local teams, which meant that at the end of the day, the end world was trusting local teams for them to do what they felt was right. However, after some time, some best practices started to emerge very clearly. And so, yes, if I was seeing someone or country not necessarily adopting those, I would pressure test and make sure I understood why that is. And there would need to be a really good reason for why not to do something that had proven to work in another 10 markets. Uh, But the end world was still very much sitting
0: in the camp of the local GM. So, you talked about the rides business and how it grew in the early days. After a while, you were responsible for globally 50, 60 odd countries. I'm really interested as an operator in. What sort of processes, routines do you have to run a global entity of that size? How did you um, hold all that together and generate a sense of cohesion while empowering people locally so that they could be successful? For me, the, the few things I take away, one, when you start to lead a
1: business that has 30, 40, 50 countries at some point with mobility, the first thing is you need to be very clear in your head and in your actions as to which are the ones that matter most, i.e. you need to ensure you don't get trapped into allocating your time and your efforts in a way that is uh, linear, where every country gets to have a bit of you. So that means uh, I've always had, you know, for many years now, every year, a country prioritization framework across a few dimensions that help me understand which are my star markets, which are my challenger markets, What's the, the strategic importance and so on. And so by bucketing countries in different groups like that, you can ensure effectively force uh, the, the allocation of resources that you want to have and be very deliberate about it. That's one aspect. The second aspect is obviously having teams that you trust and that going to be able to provide you scale and leverage. There's no way on earth that I'd be close enough to those countries and try and manage them myself, so to speak. Which means at the end of the day, my role is to hire talented leaders, help them develop, for them to be in a position to run those regions on their own with little input and in a way that is consistent with the company's strategy overall. And then the third thing I would maybe conclude on is, like many companies that have a heavy tech uh, muscle, there's a really complex question around how much to localize versus how much to lean on more of a global platform it's for the past nine, 10 years that I've been at Uber, I have seen this tension between naturally local teams wanting more and more customization and naturally wanting technology to respond as well as possible to whatever situation they face on the ground. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you obviously have tech teams that are very much keen to ensure that we best utilize the the scarce resources we have and that we find as much scale as possible, and that's something that I found be very important, but also difficult over the years. Which is, how do you understand and draw the line between, you know, how far you need to go down the pipe to kind of localize and adapt, versus how much you push for standardization, even if that means you're not producing the best local outcome in country X.
0: Yeah. One thing, if I think of how I managed to just eat, one thing I used to do a lot was like physically visiting markets. Obviously, this is pre um, a long time pre-COVID. In the early days, I would do a visit literally every week. I would go two, three days a week to one of our markets. Pre-COVID, did you find that in-person visits, you got something from that that you wouldn't have got virtually? Yeah, 100% agree. So I used to travel a lot. And that was truly the
1: best way to really get a fear for a given country, get to see, you know, it, it's always eye opening. So that is something I'm definitely missing. And I kind of look forward to hopefully starting to hit
0: the road again. Totally, totally. If I think about the Uber delivery business itself, one of the complex things you've got in food delivery is this mix of digital and physical operations that need to be really really closely coupled and intertwined you guys at uber have done that i think um, exceptionally well can you say a bit about that complexity the physical and the, and the digital coming together what is it about uber that's made you so successful at combining those two this is something that i think makes Uber and our industry, you know, extremely
1: exciting. It's this idea that it is not just a digital app sitting in a cloud, but it's actually the intersection of the digital world and the real world. And that makes all of our work and efforts so much more impactful uh, and tangible in, in everyone's daily lives. And for me, like it starts with the culture of the company itself. Uber is a company that effectively has two core engines that are working hand-in-hand. You have the operations engine, which is most of the teams sitting on the ground in countries around the world that are responsible for local consumer outcomes. And then you have, as a second engine, the product and engineering teams that are effectively building that technology in a way that is as flexible as possible for it to drive the best possible impact and experiences in all those countries where we operate. So I think it starts with how we organizing ourselves and for the culture whereby product or tech teams and operations teams have truly an equal weight around the table. One of the complexities, the operations team, by definition, is organized around geographies. It's kind of teams sitting on the ground in cities or countries that are aggregating to regions and so on. Whereas product and tech teams tend to be organized around functional areas. So it's not like we have a tech team that's focused on just the UK, for instance.
0: Uh, So they are organized by functional areas. When you say functional areas, you mean like rides delivery or do you mean something else? So rides delivery, but even
1: within that, we'd have a team focused specifically on courier, a team focused specifically on like growth aspects and so on. It means you have effectively two organizations that need to work really closely together, but that are somehow orthogonal to, to one another. And the way you have those teams work together is really important for us at Uber, very early on, we have created an organization that is called product operations individuals that are embedded into all of those product teams, but that are actually responsible for connecting back with all of the geographic teams we have around the world, understanding what the needs are, what the insights are, being that agent that transforms a signal that is geopay signals into something that is more functional and it can, you know, be leveraged across the product organizations. That's been an important. Team and organization for us that's really helped us make the most out of those two muscles we have: the technology muscle and the operational en- engine.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting that product operations function, because if I think you know a decade ago that function didn't really exist. The role of product operations was sort of played by often senior managers having big arguments with each other about priorities and stuff. So it, it, it's a really good way, I think, of professionalizing it and making it work in a, a more rational way. If you think about the delivery business that you're doing right now, you've got to drive growth, and here's one of those companies that has just grown phenomenally over the last few years, so that must always be a priority. But at the same time, you've got things like rider safety and customer safety, which are the most important thing of all. How do you balance those sort of priorities in running a business like this? First, I'd say one of the things I like most about this industry
1: and the job I get to do is... The complexity of the business really spanning across so many different dimensions. You alluded to some like safety, for instance, privacy, tax, legal, obviously operations, technology, and those are really very hard topics. Especially when you bundle all them together, and that makes decision making very complex for us. And frankly, credit to Dara, a CEO, one of the first thing he did when he came was to elevate the position of safety as a topic for us. We had as a number one priority for the company, something we called stand for safety, which has, by the way, now morphed into our company values. And it means that this is something we don't compromise on. And I can see many examples in the business where we have said, you know what, yes, we'll sacrifice some growth or maybe we won't be growing as fast as competitor X in a given market. But we think providing the safest possible experience is not only a responsibility we have as a company that touches so many people around the world, but also something that over the long run, we think will also be a differentiator, actually helping the the business itself beyond doing the right thing. We were the first company as an example in the US to publish a safety report for a mobility business where we said, you know what, we think that if we truly want to help the industry as a whole, we're going to have to be very transparent about all the incidents that are happening, hold ourselves accountable and publish that on a regular basis. And so we've had now uh, two of those reports being published, which is something obviously that is hard to make, you know, as a decision as a business because you're like, hey, why would I be so transparent and vocal about how some of the rides are not ending up like you'd want them to end up? And yet... It's been a great forcing function to not only get better ourselves, but also frankly raise the bar across the across the industry. So that would be an example of a call we've made that we probably wouldn't have made if safety wasn't part of our values at this point, that we think is fundamentally the right one, but probably
0: not on a short-term basis helping the, the business. It's really interesting part of that culture that's, as you say, evolved under Dara. I think what's rare about you, Pierre, is you've obviously been Uber a very long time, you know, nearly a decade now. So you've seen the old Uber and the new Uber and all the changes, particularly since Dara joined. Can you tell us a bit about that cultural change? How have you personally helped to lead that? How has it been challenging for you to evolve with that? Because the business you're in now is completely different from the one that you joined a decade ago.
1: I spend a lot of time looking back at all those yells at Uber and about, you know, what Should and could we have done differently? While Uber was, frankly, a very small but promising startup, people tended to have a lot of sympathy towards a company that's kind of pushing the boundaries and, you know, pushing for growth and so on, which meant that in the first few years of the company, everyone was celebrating Uber as an example of what it takes to transform an industry and so on. But then... Quite rapidly, as Uber started to become more well-known around the world, as Uber started to raise, what at the time, were big amount of funds from well-known institutional investors, the bar evolved a lot as to what was now expected of a company like Uber, a company of that size, a company of that impact, when it comes to important topics like safety, culture, diversity, and so on. And that is something that I think the company as a whole and its leadership at the time was probably slow to realize, which is, hey, we're not anymore a tiny startup that can afford to cross the lines here and there for the sake of doing something good fundamentally. You're trying to build a great product. We've got to be changing a lot more and being a lot fiercer about the moral compass of the company. After a number of controversies and issues that you know of, that's when Dara was called in. I think he was the exact right leader for that transformation. And what's been surprising to me, actually, what I was not expecting, you know, back in 2017, really, the company was being attacked left and right for you know, what I I would qualify like real reasons, tangible reasons. So it it was not like we had PR issues, we had proper culture issues. And at the time, people were even wondering, you know, is this company going to make it or is it going to destroy itself? And I was very surprised and amazed about the speed at which that cultural change happened. The reason has been that actually a ton of people were probably not super comfortable with how things were going. And so when suddenly you change people at the top, you put a new CEO in place that comes in and that says as the first thing, Hey, do the right thing and stand for safety are the two values and probably the two most important values I want, I want this company to have from now on. The whole employee base took that as a bit of a breath of fresh air, and that allowed for a
0: very rapid change in culture. And I guess it gives everyone the kind of license and the language to push back if they see the company doing something wrong. You know, if you're in a meeting and a decision's been made that you're not comfortable with, you can then speak up and say, look, we've got to do the right thing. And you know that Dara's got your back in a sense. Absolutely right. What you've described is huge cultural change in the company. Was there much resistance to that? Did some people just have to leave because it didn't sit right with
1: them? There wasn't resistance. And overall, the majority of the employees were definitely welcoming this change. Now, for some individuals, you're right, they were not going to thrive in the new Uber. And so they either decided to leave the company around that time, or in some instances, some people were terminated from the company as a result of a lot of the investigations that happened around the 2017 time period. So you'd have a minority of individuals for who it didn't kind of work out, uh, but overall, the
0: majority of the employee base were very much supportive of this change. You've obviously personally had to lead huge teams of people through this period of change. Evidently, you've done it really successfully. What are the sort of leadership behaviors that you've adopted that have enabled you to deal with that level of change and have the business thrive through it? My learning here is that it has
1: to start with transparency and with being transparent about your own feelings and emotions. I see that a lot of people instinctively when things are not going really well, their natural instinct to kind of boost teams up and get everyone motivated is to be overselling things and in some way being a bit fakely positive about everything. And I found that people actually react better to you being candid about, you know, what you're anxious about. It has to start with being quite candid in your diagnosis of today's situation, because that's what actually builds trust when you start to talk about tomorrow, because people see that you're looking at the world eye to eye with them and you have the same analysis as they probably have right now. And so that's kind of the learning for me, which is I, I try and engage teams and get them excited or positive about things starting with a common understanding of where we at as opposed to trying to overly paint a rosy picture of where we at
0: you mentioned as part of this cultural change making Uber a more diverse organization and obviously gender diversity was one of the key cultural challenges in in the early days tell us about the progress that you've made there and how you've managed to to become a more diverse place it's a topic that I have become fairly passionate about.
1: When your company starts to be criticized like Uber has been, that is a great catalyst for self-reflection and for taking a hard look at yourself. Uh, A lot of the criticisms were around what people saw as an an inclusive uh, culture. And so I spent a lot of time speaking to people, to women within Uber and outside Uber, reading a lot of research, effectively educating myself a lot more on the topic. And what I realized up to now, if you had asked me about diversity, I would have told you, "Hey, I'm you know I'm not racist. I don't discriminate people." So it, I, I get that there might be an issue here in the world, but it's not really me. And I realized that was part of the issue. Actually, it was the fact that the majority of people that indeed are probably not the the worst conceptually as far as like how they think about the topic, because they are totally unaware of their own biases, which we all have they actually contribute uh, to the to a situation where not everyone has equal chances of success in their professional lives, social lives, and so on. We needed to take a, n- a number of actions to get people to open their eyes as well, just like I had started to open my eyes and drive change to become a more inclusive culture. There are two things really at a high level that uh, were important for me. There's been one, how do you... Uh, get people to believe that there is an issue in the first place and that they're part of that uh, and two okay well, now that we know that how do you drive change on the get to believe i've tried to do alongside some of our teams at the time what had worked for me which is uh influencing people at least trying to touch both the hearts and the brains of people and the hearts is about a bunch of videos and content that that kind of Resonate at least, resonated at least for me. You, you look at videos like the blue and brown eye experiment, for instance, which is something happening many decades ago in the U.S., which is really fascinating um, around uh, you know discrimination. You look, so there was a lot of content out there that I think it's it's hard to watch without feeling like you know sad about it. And then the brain is more older studies, this bunch of stuff you know, from Harvard Business Reviews and uh, that showed very tangible facts explaining that there is indeed a, a gap, uh, an uneven playing field. And then from that, uh, together with the HR teams at Uber and the leadership teams at Uber, we've driven a bunch of tactical changes uh, to how we assess performance, how we promote people, how we organize peer feedbacks, how we hire into the company. To try and fight those unconscious biases that we all have, we moved from a world where, if yourself, Adrienne, say you led a team of ten people, like you had ten direct reports, we are at year-end performance review time. Um, the typical process that most companies have is okay. Well, Adrienne, as a manager of ten people, tell me who are the you know who who do you want to nominate for promotion? You'd say, well, I'm Adrienne. I'm going to nominate Matt and Phil in my team because of XYZ. What we've moved from, so moved from that to a world where now you're effectively telling me, okay, well, in my team of 10, there are eight or whatever, six people that are eligible for promotion because of their tenure or whatever. Now, let me tell you, let me take each and every one of those six people and tell you why they should or why they should not be promoted. And that's been really interesting and it's moved from the conversation from let me tell you who the two people are that I prefer most that are, you know should be promoted in my team to let me review everyone and also tell you well why Sarah should not be promoted. And as you do that, you force a lot more objectivity. You It helps contain some of the biases. So that's one example among many, but I've seen that help a lot uh, as far as like trying to even out the playing field when it comes to progression within the company. And then from hiring people, bunch of activities as well and things have helped. I'm, I'll give you just one as well, so you have a sense, which has been to ask for a diverse set of candidates at the upper end of the funnel. And it sounds obvious, but not everyone does it, which is, hey, if I'm going to be hiring for this role, I want to make sure that the 20 resumes we scan in the first place are effectively diverse and pretty much balanced, at least across gender. And that has had big impact. There's, there's research showing you that if you have just one woman, for instance, out of a pool of three or four finalists in a round, her chances to get hired, her odds to get hired are extremely low because she would stand out as the only different candidate from the rest. And so your brain kind of somehow singles her out. If you move that from one to two, it makes a huge difference as to the odds of one of the two being hired. And so it's a lot of things like that backed by research that we've tried to deploy. And it, it's really moved the needle, and over a number of years, we were able to drive a lot of progress. If you ask me, across my direct organization, um, I have about 42% of the most senior talent, so we call that level five and above, uh, that are actually women. 42 is uh, relative to 58, basically, which is you know not perfect,
0: but definitely far better than what it was for five years back. Totally. Really interesting. We've covered so much. I mean, you've clearly had an incredibly intense 10 years. It would have been enough to drive most people crazy. You've somehow managed to remain a pretty, I would say, calm, rational, level-headed person. How have you managed on a personal level just to stay sane through all of this (laughs) it's a good question after 10 years at uber i don't know how sane
1: I, i still am but i would say i'm getting back all the time to the impact we get to have and that's one of the things that keeps me going and keeps me around which is i feel that we're being part of something that is bigger than ourselves which is reinventing how things and people move in cities and that I find I find quite interesting. And I had that feeling of, you know, not exactly knowing what tomorrow will be made of, but knowing that you'll be different and will have play a role. The second thing that's been true for me all those years is really around learning from the people I get to see around me, learning from you know the, the those self-reflections I have every now and then. I'd say that feeling of getting better and still have a long list of things to get better at is something that on most days is a motivation. And then I try and make sure that I take enough time for myself to exercise, just spend time with family. And I've, I've understood that at the end of the day, this is a marathon. Any job really has to be working yourself, for your family over the long run. That's something I've tried to be disciplined about all all those years, despite obviously having a
0: work that's pretty intense. Wow. And and well done for for holding it all together. I mean, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely incredible what you've achieved. Pierre, thank you for taking the time. I realize you've got an incredibly intense job still right now. And it's really generous of you to take the time to share this with the broader community of operators. Thank you so much. And it's really been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Thank you, Adrian. I enjoyed the chat. Thank you.